0: Of a Bachelor Degree Nursing Program. Over the years, I've learned that students have an immense amount of confusion and questions when they leave didactic, which makes applying what they are learning nearly impossible to the clinical setting. I want to break down the basics so that you can continue to build upon your knowledge and put the pieces together. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Let's Review RN. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about diabetic ketoacidosis in depth, which is an extension of the Type 1 Diabetic series that I've been doing for the last several weeks. In the last several podcast episodes, I've been going over the pathophysiology of Type 1 Diabetes, diagnosis and treatment, and I spent an entire episode speaking with both Colleen and Jesse, who are both hosts of the podcast, This is Type 1, which we dove into their journey of having Type 1 Diabetes and what it's like to live the lifestyle of a Type 1 Diabetic. In this episode today, I will talk about diabetic ketoacidosis, the pathophysiology of it, treatment, nursing interventions, and highlighting the key elements that you need to take away from the knowledge and the educational aspects of diabetic ketoacidosis. Diabetic ketoacidosis, also referred to as DKA, is a serious complication of diabetes that occurs when the body produces high levels of ketones, which is a type of blood acid. This can lead to metabolic acidosis. The condition develops when your body cannot produce enough insulin or there is not a sufficient amount of exogenous insulin, which plays a role in helping glucose, a major source of energy for your muscles and tissue, to enter your cells. Remember, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, insulin is sort of the key that opens the cell door to allow glucose to enter and be utilized for energy. Since the body cannot utilize the glucose that is circulating in the bloodstream, it appears as though the body is in an energy deficient state and turns to the liver for glucose for fuel. The liver sees the body needing fuel and depletes its glycogen stores to help fuel the cells. It almost thinks the body is in a hypoglycemic state when really it's in a hyperglycemic state but cannot utilize the blood glucose circulating in the bloodstream. It releases glycogen stores, which is broken down then into glucose, and the blood sugar continues to rise. Now the body continues to be at a lack of fuel and turns to breaking down fats for fuel. When the body utilizes fat for fuel, a byproduct of fat metabolism is ketones. This produces a buildup of acid in the bloodstream called ketones, which eventually leads to diabetic ketoacidosis if untreated. Ketones are very acidic, and ultimately the blood pH will drop less than 7.35, which results in metabolic acidosis. Because of the high levels of glucose, the kidneys do not reabsorb glucose, but rather spill over the extra glucose into the urine, and the patient will also experience osmotic diuresis, which is increased urination caused by the presence of certain substance in the tubules of the kidneys. This excessive excretion occurs when high levels of substance such as glucose are in the kidney tubules and cannot be reabsorbed. The substance causes an increase in osmotic pressure within the tubules, reducing reabsorption of water and increasing urine output. In layman's terms, you have an increase in molecules that are being excreted by the kidneys and water is following the high concentration of molecules. Because of this osmotic diuresis, the patient will have electrolyte imbalances, such as changes in the sodium, potassium, and chloride. Diabetic ketoacidosis mainly occurs in type 1 diabetes. This doesn't mean it's impossible for it to happen to type 2 diabetics, but it is rare. I spoke a little bit about the causes of diabetic ketoacidosis, mainly tied to the lack of insulin. This is true, and one of the main reasons for diabetic ketoacidosis is undiagnosed type 1 diabetes. So most patients present in some form of diabetic ketoacidosis when they are first diagnosed with type 1 diabetes because they have very little or no insulin production. Another cause would be if the body is requiring more insulin than normal due to stress, illness, or even medications such as corticosteroids or thiazide diuretics. Another cause of diabetic ketoacidosis would be skipping meals, which would force the body into a starvation mode, which leads to the utilization of fat for fuel. And again, the byproduct of fat metabolism is ketones, which then build up over time and cause metabolic acidosis. Lastly, if the patient is not taking their insulin as prescribed, this can lead to DKA. I talked last week about diabetic burnout which is when the patient simply becomes overwhelmed with the diagnosis of diabetes and stops taking care of themselves and stops taking their insulin. So let's talk about what a patient looks like when they're in diabetic ketoacidosis. The patient will present with hyperglycemia, greater than 300 milligrams per deciliter for their blood glucose level, And because of the same osmosis law that we talked about previously, water from inside the cells will move to where there are high concentrations of molecules, such as high levels of glucose outside the cell in the bloodstream. This creates a sense of dehydration for the patient because the fluid or the water is leaving the cells going into the bloodstream, and it will also create frequent urination known as polyuria. The patient feels dehydrated and will experience polydipsia, which is increased thirst. The patient will have high levels of ketones in the blood, causing the pH level to drop less than 37.35. The patient will will report weight loss, which is due to utilizing fat for fuel, and the patient may experience a fruity breath tone or breath smell due to the ketones in the blood and because of the metabolic acidosis. In metabolic acidosis, you will see a pH less than 7.35 and the sodium bicarb will drop. Normal range of sodium bicarb is 22 to 26. The patient may start to experience Kussmaul breathing, which is described as rapid, deep breaths. The body is trying to compensate for high acid levels or a, a high acidic environment caused by the excess ketones, and it tries to blow off the carbon dioxide, which is an acid itself. This is a compensatory mechanism to correct the pH. Patients may also experience nausea, vomiting, and abdominal discomfort, which is more prevalent in pediatric patients. All of these symptoms will happen suddenly in DKA, which is important to note as we talk next week about the complications of diabetes such as HHNK, which is mostly seen in type 2 diabetics. Treatment for DKA will include hydration. A nurse will be administering IV fluids, and they typically start out with normal saline, 0.9%, which is an isotonic solution. It is possible that IV fluids can be changed to contain 5% dextrose as the blood sugar level starts starts to decline. It's important not to bring the blood glucose level down too fast, which is why they use the 5% dextrose solution. You don't want to bring the glucose levels down too fast because the brain cannot adjust to this and you can cause cerebral edema with fluid shifts in response to too quickly or too rapidly correcting the blood glucose levels. The patient will be receiving insulin via IV and remember the only type of insulin that can be administered IV is regular insulin. Blood glucose levels will be monitored every 15 minutes to begin when the insulin drip is initiated, and you will be titrating your drip based on the glucose level. You want to continue to monitor the potassium level and make sure it stays greater than 3.5. Remember, the normal range of potassium is 3.5 to 5.0, and this can vary based on the, the organization you work at. As you start to administer insulin, it will allow glucose and electrolytes to move back into the cells and therefore can cause hypokylamia, which is low potassium levels. This may require the patient to be on potassium supplement, either oral or IV potassium replacement. I do want to make sure that you note that when you replace the patient's potassium via IV, we want to assess for phlebitis because potassium infused intravenously is hard on the veins. It can also burn or be very uncomfortable for the patient. When replacing potassium, you want to assess for any EKG changes, and you want to account for the patients who have renal insufficiency because they cannot clear their potassium as effectively as someone with normal renal function. Education is key when considering nursing interventions for patients who are experiencing DKA. Educating patients on how to monitor their glucose, as well as urine ketones when they are sick, is extremely important because they are at high risk for developing diabetic ketoacidosis. If they cannot eat or drink for whatever reason, they need to notify their physician. If their blood glucose sugars start to creep up and average greater than 300, they also need to notify their physician. Lastly, as a nurse... They need to be aware if there are ketones in the urine, and they would want to notify the physician. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode on diabetic ketoacidosis, and next time we'll talk about HHNK, which is hyperosmolar hyperglycemic non-ketoacidosis, which is primarily seen in the type 2 diabetic and is another complication that can be seen in the diabetic population. Again, remember, you can always find me at Instagram handle Let's review RN. I'd love to hear from you. And as always, I would love to see you rate and review. I'd love to hear from you guys and to understand what I can bring to you. This podcast is for general information review purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or nursing. The use of this information or any materials provided by Let's Review RN are at the user's own risk. This content is not intended to be a substitute for educational teachings through students' educational institutes or organizations.